This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and uplifting. Let's get right to it. Ali Velshi cut his broadcast teeth here in Ontario. He went on to journalism prominence in the United States, serving as CNN's chief business correspondent, anchor of CNN International's World Business Today, host of Your Money, and co-host of American Morning. An award-winning journalist, he is now a headliner at NBC and MSNBC. His current role has him crisscrossing the U.S. in the lead-up to the presidential election. He joins us now in conversation, Velshi across America. Ali, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, it feels so good to be back with you, uh, old friend. I I remember when you and I worked in the same newsroom, and uh, I picked up a lot of good tips from you. And I, you, and I watch you with great admiration. So let me ask you this. What are Americans saying today about the handling of President Trump's COVID-19 infection? Well, uh, recent polling indicates that by a two-to-one margin, uh, people think that he didn't handle it well uh, and actually come to the conclusion that Joe Biden would have handled it better. Now, when you look at two-to-one margins, you're looking at sort of uh, 70%, 35%, and you realize that there's a sort of a base of support Donald Trump has that hangs around the 30 to 35% uh, range that he doesn't tend to go below. So it tends to be hardened Trump supporters believe he's done a perfectly good job. Uh, others don't, and uh, that's reflected as I'm out in the cross talking to voters in America. I, I get that sort of response from people. So earlier this week, Trump is quoted as saying, don't be afraid of COVID-19. Don't let it dominate your life. Get out there. Be careful. What are Americans saying about that? Well, even people who think Donald Trump has done a good job or an okay job uh, at coronavirus are, are a little concerned about the comments that he's made since having tested positive, going to the hospital, coming out. It, it, it seems a little bit uh, tone deaf because of the 200,000 plus Americans who have died for this, in many cases, they've not been able to access treatment properly, haven't had proper hospital beds. Uh, in some cases, in the early days in New York and other places, uh, they were storing the bodies of people who had passed uh, in, in, in refrigerated trucks. So not everybody had the same experience with COVID that uh, Donald Trump had, where he got helicoptered to one of the country's finest hospitals and, and gets experimental treatments that are not available to the public. So uh, his, his comments having come out of uh, the hospital don't seem to be being received all that well. Is it a missed opportunity, do you think, that he didn't come out and say, you know, I realize now the power of COVID-19 and I realize how deadly it is and I will do everything to protect myself, the White House staff and fellow Americans? I would have thought that's where he would have gone with it. In fact, something that he said earlier when he had been admitted to hospital, which surprised me, he put out a statement about how much more he's learned about COVID-19, which is just amazing because as the president of the United States, with all these experts around him and the Centers for Disease Control and the F- uh, FAA, you'd think he would actually know a lot about these things, the FDA, I'm sorry. Uh, so when he came and said, I've learned a lot about it, I thought that was going to be followed with dot, 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 and here's what I think we should do about it. The conclusion he appears to have come to is that I know a lot more about it, and it's really not that serious. Remember, politically, it is bad when the country focuses on COVID-19. It's good when they focus on the stock market, and Donald Trump's trying to pivot that back. 
there's not a lot of time left between now, this weekend, and the presidential election. What has to be done on both fronts? Uh, what does Trump have to do? What does Biden have to do in order to make tracks? Well, there are a few things at play. One is that uh, Joe Biden is winning on the temperament side. People sort of think he's got the personality necessary to deal with these issues like COVID and the recession and, and whatever else a president needs to deal with. On the other hand, uh, both sides have uh, supporters who are dug in, and the idea now is to animate those supporters and say, you've got to get out there and vote. The polling indicates massive gains for Joe Biden. But again, national polling is not as relevant in the United States where it's a state-by-state -state race even though Joe Biden's ahead on that front, polling versus who goes out to vote, particularly in a resurgent COVID-19 environment, uh, is anybody's guess. At this point, it's about registration and turnout. That's the whole ballgame, and, and it, it's too early to know how that's going to turn out. So, Ali, last weekend you spent time in Fremont, Ohio, talking with six voters. What did you get from that? Well, first of all, the thing I got is that I landed in Detroit in order to go to Fremont, Ohio, and I was looking very longingly at Windsor. Uh, I've got my Canadian passport with me at all times, and I'm hoping uh, to pop over and visit my parents at some point. Um, but uh, what I learned in Fremont is that nobody's really undecided right now. We think that there are 6 or 7% of people who are undecided. Most people have made up their minds. The issue is the enthusiasm with which people who are going to vote for Donald Trump, but they're a little disappointed in his performance, will they go out and cast that ballot? And people who wanted somebody else to be the Democratic nominee, maybe Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or someone, are they going to go out and cast their ballot uh, for, for Joe Biden? But on the issues, people are largely decided. Uh, this is really coming down to a personality contest at this point. Do you want four more years of Donald Trump, or are you exhausted by this news cycle and you want some sort of a return to normalcy? Joe Biden represents normalcy in American politics right now. Uh, Donald Trump, depending on who you are, represents something else. So the issues, obviously, we, we know what they are. Does the White House handling of the COVID-19 uh, issue with Donald Trump, does that factor in? Is that something that people are mulling over right now in terms of making their decision? Yeah, uh, Donald Trump would really like his handling of his own coronavirus instance to be seen as something heroic. They, they uh, issued a video seconds, literally seconds after Donald Trump landed on the helicopter uh, at, back at the White House. Very heroic video of helicopter landings and the president saluting and all that kind of stuff. He wants to see this as uh, a triumph. He overcame COVID. For most Americans, remember, 7 million people, more than 7 million people have the infection. More than 200,000 have died, which means everybody knows somebody with this, uh, who had this infection and may have died from it, that's not the experience they see. They don't see anybody landing on helicopters. They don't see anybody making a mar miraculous comeback. They don't see people getting experimental drugs. So uh, that is having a, a playing a role in this. Uh, Donald Trump is trying to turn it into a positive. As of now, that hasn't happened yet. Hashtag Velshi across America. So explain what that means, what you've done so far, and what's next. Well, I'm going uh, to a different state every weekend. I'm talking to six voters, not necessarily representative, because you can't get representative in six voters. But generally speaking, I try and find two Democrats, two Republicans, and two independents. Independents doesn't mean they're undecided. It means they're not registered with one of the political parties. And, and I'm having what I uh, think is an issues-based conversation on where they stand with the candidates. In some cases, it's really hardy. People are worried about abortion rights. They're worried about uh, health care. They're worried about the Supreme Court. They're worried about COVID. They're 
worried about the economy. But in other cases, people are just dug in because, as you know, they get their information from where they get it. And sometimes that's Facebook, and sometimes it's their friends. Um, it's not the hardiest uh, political discussion sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit of myth-busting. Uh, but it is good to be out there and actually talking to voters as opposed to, opposed to analysts and, uh, and contributors. So I'm enjoying it. You know, business was your beat for the longest time, and I think that it still has uh, some role in what you do today. What would that role be, your background in business reporting? Yeah, and, and, and it was where it's how I grew up. In fact, when you and I worked together in Toronto, I was a, I was a business reporter, uh, and I, I really enjoyed doing that over the years, but the last three and a half years has made all of us into political reporters. I think if you were a sports reporter, you're a political reporter. If you were a medicine reporter, you're political now. Um, so uh, ultimately, this issue of a recession and how uh, a presidential candidate will deal with the economy is forefront in people's minds. One of the things about going to all these places in Belshi across America is people want to know what the president's going to do for the place in which they live and their jobs and their health insurance. So I, I ultimately think that once we get back to normalcy, whatever that is and whenever that is, the economy is still going to become, uh, again, the main issue. People want jobs, they want an increase in their wages, they want prosperity, and they want financial security. And, and that, in a normal world, that would be the whole ballgame. That would be the entire discussion. As you know, we're not in a normal world right now, so we're talking about a whole lot of other things. And a lot of people in Canada, as they watch what's happening in America, say we're not seeing anything that's normal about this presidential election as well. No, this is entirely abnormal, uh, including the fact that we have uh, voting challenges in every state. Uh, we've got uh, challenges to people's ability to vote. So we're not even just running a normal campaign about who you're going to vote for. We're still discussing who can vote, how they're going to vote, and it's very confusing for Americans. Do they mail in their ballot? Do they not do that because there are issues with the post office? Uh, how, do they, how safe is it to go out and stand in a line with hundreds of other people or touch a machine to vote? So we're still at that stage. I will consider it a success if an overwhelming majority of Americans vote and our voter turnout is higher than it has been before. But I don't believe we will have a result uh, to the presidential election on the night of November 3rd. I think with all the absentee ballots and mail-in ballots, it could be days, it might even be weeks. Interesting. Let's talk about the comparison between Canadian politics and American politics. You've witnessed both. You've been a part of both. How do they compare? I don't think in Canadian politics you can get away with an entire absence of a policy discussion. Look, I'm a policy wonk. I always want to know the details of every last thing that's going to happen. But in America, for instance, there are some people for whom climate change is a big issue, and they would have rather had uh, one of the other candidates than, than Joe Biden. But they realize that if it's between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, Joe Biden acknowledges and is willing to spend money on, on uh, repairing the climate. Donald Trump's not fully convinced that it's, it's, uh, that humans have an impact on climate. So it's like that. There are a lot of people who want to have discussions that are more nuanced and more detailed, but there's no point in having it because for a lot of people who want change, the only way any of that change will occur is if Donald Trump isn't the president. If you remember in the last election, a lot of people who didn't like Hillary Clinton voted for Jill Stein or a third-party candidate or refrained from voting, and they got Donald Trump. I think that's the big challenge this time, particularly for more progressive members of the, the Democratic Party, and that is that pretend this is a big tent that you're a part of uh, and vote for the Democratic Party and then fight from within to change things. It's not that that hasn't happened in Canada. It's just that it, it, the, the party as big tent problem is not as bad in Canada as it is here. So is there a possibility, based on the numbers, based on the stats, based on the polling, the early polling, 
Is there the chance that Donald Trump will spend another four years in the White House? Yes, because if you look at all the polling, it certainly trends toward Joe Biden. When you look at the state-by-state polling, it trends toward Joe Biden. But in the end, the presidential candidate has to get a number uh, of of electoral college votes. And there are a number of states in which uh, Donald Trump can get that. The path to victory, as they describe it, meaning the number of states that add up to get you past the 50% mark in electoral votes, is slim and it's narrowing for Donald Trump. There aren't any predictions that indicate it completely gone. There's also a lot of uncertainty. There are a lot of people I talk to who say that they're undecided. Statistics indicate there aren't that many people undecided. There may just be a bunch of Trump voters who don't want to admit that they're voting for Donald Trump. So um, I'm almost wrong every time I predict something. Uh, So I won't make any predictions, but I will say this. Anybody who thinks this game is over with almost, uh, you know, three weeks to go uh, is mistaken. If you're just joining us on In Conversation, we're speaking up close, up front, and upliftingly with Ali Velshi, a headliner, a journalist extraordinaire at NBC and MSNBC right now. So I want to talk about your life, and is there uh, the opportunity to carve out time for you and for your beautiful wife to actually spend some quality time together while you are crisscrossing the United States in pursuit of some answers as we head toward the presidential election? Well, for the first month of coronavirus, we were separated. My, my wife went to our place in Philadelphia, and I had a home studio built in New York, so we didn't see each other for a while, um, and we were, you know, we were completely isolating from each other. Then uh, we, we put in a little studio in my Philadelphia home, so now I, I can go between New York and Philadelphia, and I get to spend a lot more time with my wife, which is great. But recently, because of Velshi Across America, I've started traveling again, and that you know creates some problems because I'm in places in some, where there are coronavirus hotspots where people don't mask uh, or they don't respect social distancing as much, and so I come back and, uh, for instance, you know, in the last few days, I've been in the same house as my wife, but I've been wearing a mask and, and sleeping in a different place and sort of uh, trying to keep separate. But I do enjoy at least uh, in this lack of normalcy the fact that we get to spend more time together. Uh, but we, we, we're in between those things. The other thing I do, Anne, is I cover hurricanes as well, and I've, I've been out for three of them already uh, this season. So there's a lot of travel, uh, and uh, that part is, is, is taxing. I'm, I'm not as young as I was when I worked with you, but I do enjoy it, and uh, I enjoy talking to people out there, and I certainly enjoy being able to spend more time with my wife. And what do you say to up-and-coming, no matter what their age, up-and-coming journalists on either side of the border who would like to carve out a career as magnificent as yours? Well, I would say this, and I used to say to people that they've got to emulate uh, someone like you, who's, who really enjoys it so much that you can pursue journalism in any incarnation. I don't think there's any type of journalism you haven't done in your career, but that sometimes it'll be prosperous and sometimes it'll be underpaid and sometimes the opportunities won't all be there, so you better be wholly committed. I almost used to talk people out of doing it, sort of saying, if you're going to go to school and study for something, study for something, it's a more certain bet because this is an uncertain future. I now think it's a calling. I think it is uh, a job that puts you right in the arena into one of the most important times 
uh, in human history, uh, regardless of just the Trump administration. This is, you know, 2020 is going to be a year that we talk about for 50 or 60 years. So I, I now tell people it's important. Just remember, it's journalism. It's about asking questions. It's about bearing witness, and it's about holding power to account. It's not about being on TV or being on the radio or seeing your byline. It's about asking questions on behalf of the people who are your consumers. But I, I, have, uh, I have changed my view on whether people should go into journalism. I think anybody who's even remotely inclined should. And tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but and the, the truth. truth. Absolutely. Ali Velshi, thank you. In conversation, this has been exciting, exhilarating, and eye-opening. Thank you. My pleasure, friend. Coming up, federal politics on this side of the border. We're back with the new leader of the Green Party. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the show. Annami Paul was elected leader of the Green Party last weekend. With that, she becomes the first black person to lead a major federal party. And also with that, she embarks on perhaps the most daring journey of her life. In conversation now with Green Party leader Annami Paul, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So I took a look at many things about you, including the About Anime video recorded to help your party and really Canadians get to know you a little better. The word daring was said at least four times, and the caption at the end read, let's be daring. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that we are in this unprecedented moment uh, that is going to require our very best ideas. It's going to require things that we have never thought of before. Uh, and we need a party that is willing to put those big, bold ideas out there. We need a party uh, that is willing uh, to uh, really tell a story to people in Canada about how we can emerge from this pandemic more resilient. Uh, and uh, also how we can, of course, tackle the climate emergency, which is the greatest threat of our time. So let's talk about that, the pandemic and the Green Party ideals. Why, in your view, is now the time for Canadians to listen to what the Green Party is promising, diversity, democracy, and daring? Because if, uh, if we had had more Greens elected or if Greens uh, had been governing at this moment or in the past, we would have been more prepared, more resilient, uh, and there would have been fewer Canadians to fall through the cracks. You know, we have been talking about the policies that protect people. And uh, in addition to talking, of course, about the climate emergency. And so, you know, we, if we can embrace more of that and the people in Canada can see the opportunity for that kind of leadership, then there's a lot that we can accomplish. You also believe in inclusion, and it's not lost on anyone. It is International Women's Month, a history of women. You are passionate about promoting diversity in Canadian politics. In fact, you founded and directed the Canadian Centre for Political Leadership. Was this all part of building what you needed to in order to get to this point, the new leader of the Green Party? I wish I could say it was part of some grand master plan. But no, I mean, for me, I, I'm someone that was born and raised here, and we've done such an extraordinary job in this country of attracting uh, the greatest talent from all over the world and, and home-growing it like me. 
And so it always seemed like such a waste and shame that it wasn't involved in our political life. Uh, we know, you know, from the evidence that you create better public policy when you have that diversity. And so, you know, it's always been something very important to me to make sure we're tapping into all of the talent that we have in our country. You know, politics has been on your radar for a very long time. I understand that you were a page at a very early age for the Ontario legislature. Let's talk about that experience. <laughs> there was a very awkward uh, photo of me that my mother insists on dragging out every time uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a new person comes by or a guest. Uh, it was, you know, having that early exposure uh, to politics, first it gave me a respect for the people that do that work. Uh, something that you know, has been lost over time, but something that when you see it close up, you really gain a respect for how hard it is and how committed people are across party lines. Uh, and then, you know, it also uh, helps me to understand that there is an important role for government uh, to play in times of need. And we've really seen that uh, during the pandemic. And it's one of the reasons that I decided that to run for the leadership. I really wanted to be part of that positive change. A good deal of your professional life has been about international affairs, including as an advisor at the International Criminal Court in The Hague and as a political officer in Canada's mission to the European Union. So how does that prepare you for what's next? Well, we are in a moment of global challenges, uh, whether it's the pandemic or the climate emergency or economic issues like the changing nature of work. These are, none of these things can be addressed uh, simply at the national level. And so having someone who uh, has the experience of, of working and building coalitions internationally um, and has the comparative experience of having lived in different places and worked in different systems, I really believe that's a really big advantage for our party uh, and for, you know, from my perspective, leadership uh, uh, here in Canada. Anami, why was now the time to run for the Green Party leadership? Well, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth decided that she was stepping down after a very illustrious career as the leader of our party. I uh, gave it a lot of thought. I want to thank every single person who encouraged me to, uh, to step forward because you know, women, and particularly women of color, need that encouragement. Uh, and I felt that I was ready. I felt that after all the things that you mentioned, uh, that I had the professional and lived experience to make this contribution. I believe in the party. I believe in its members. Uh, and I'm so grateful that they agreed that, uh, that I could be trusted uh, with this responsibility. You are very proud of your family history. Tell me about the two women in your life and how they influenced you, your mom and your grandmother. Yes, my, my grandma passed away um, three, four years ago now, and uh, we miss her very much. But they definitely were the two towering women in my, in my, my life. Uh, my mother is 84 now, and she still is. Uh, they really had an expectation that they articulated it was, and also was very also unspoken that we were supposed to be of service. Uh, my mother was a teacher, and my grandmother uh, was a, a nurse, uh, and then a nurse's aide here in Canada. And they were always of service to the community. And so they expected us to convert whatever talents and interests we had uh, into public service. And I, I'm so proud that my mother is still here to, to see this moment. Um, as a black woman, I don't believe that uh, you know, when she arrived in Canada, she ever imagined that she would see this day. So it's very special. Yeah. 
And speaking of family, you're married almost a quarter of a century, if you don't mind me saying it that way, to your partner. And your partner is an international human rights lawyer. You have two teenage children. How do they all shape the person you are today? Well, I don't mind you mentioning it, but I know that my son will will want me to mention that he is now 20. Wow. <laughs> and so no longer a teenager. Um, they, they, uh, you know, they are in terms of the most daring thing. You had said that this is perhaps my most daring adventure, but really being a parent is, is absolutely and continues to be my most daring adventure. And it's been such a, such a very special thing for our family to have gone through this uh, leadership race together. Uh, my older son should have been away at university. My husband is never in the country. He's only, only works internationally. And so to have them here and to be working toward this goal together and see the support uh, that they've given me has really uh, just been one of the most uh, special moments uh, in, our, in our long life as a family together. Well, well put. Anami, you ran for the Green Party in Toronto Centre in the 2019 federal election. So what did you learn from that experience? And will your new party leadership victory impact your chances in the Toronto Centre by-election on October 26th? Uh, what, what I learned in the last election, and it, it sounds funny, it is funny, but it's true, uh, was to wear uh, really good shoes, really comfortable <laughs> shoes, uh, because... You know, you spend all day walking through the community and canvassing and speaking to people. And if you really want to know a community, uh, you have got to be uh, on the ground, at the, you know, just on the streets. Uh, and so, um, you know, we're in a different world and we can't do that same sort of mainstreeting this time around. Uh, but I know that people in Toronto Centre need uh, representation, real representation more than ever. Um, you know, it has been a riding that has had uh, one liberal after another being brought into the community from somewhere else and not staying around after they've won. Uh, and uh, they're really struggling with uh, the pandemic. So, uh, you know, I'm going to run. I'm going to give them that option. It was really the right thing to do. I, I decided to do it before uh, I, um, I won the leadership. And uh, I hope that they'll see that they deserve more than they've been getting from their, uh, from their liberal MPs. I'm going back to the three D's, diversity, democracy, and daring. What are you offering Canadians as the Green Party leader that might persuade more people to lean green, if you will? I am offering, uh, and we are offering, a a new path, uh, a path that takes us towards a more resilient future, a path that takes us uh, towards the green economy that's going to create the jobs of the future, that's going to prevent our, that sorry, allow our planet to remain uh, livable. Uh, I'm offering a party that has that had the policies then and will have the policies in the future to complete our social safety net. Uh, and I'm just encouraging them to to take a new path and to get off this road to nowhere uh, that our current leadership has us on. Um, you know that requires a bit of daring on their part. But, you know, no Green who has ever been elected has lost their seat in Canada. And it's because we represent uh, our constituents well, we represent people well, uh, and they won't be disappointed if they make that choice. It's been a week since you became the new party leader for the Green Party. Let's talk about what you have as the dust is beginning to settle just a little bit. Has anything changed about how you are going to proceed as the leader and your commitment to the environment, to climate change, to all of the things that the Green Party stands for? 
a lot can change in a week, but not those fundamental uh, commitments. Uh, we, you know, we entered this race knowing that people in Canada um, uh, needed and deserved uh, a strong green option. And I will say that what has happened uh, throughout the race and throughout the last week of questions and comments uh, and all the ways I've been getting to know people in Canada, uh, people in Canada have made it clear and they're, keep, they're continuing to make it clear that they do not want to go back to the way things were, uh, that they want a, a better and brighter future uh, and they're realizing that they need to make uh, different choices in order to get there. And so I am more determined than ever to make sure that come the next election, they have that uh, strong green option that we're as prepared as we can be to lead. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, as long as my voice holds up, I'm ready to get going. Well, your voice is coming through loud and clear. Anime Paul, new <laughs> leader of the Green Party, thank you for spending time with us in conversation. It has been such a pleasure, and I hope you'll invite me back soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Anime. Well, that wraps up the show for today. You know, I learned so much. Ali Velshi wearing his heart on his sleeve throughout our entire chat. And you know what? He is exactly the same as he was when we worked together all those years ago. He is still approachable, intelligent, and deeply committed to everything he does. And Anami Paul, the new leader of the Green Party, determined to change the world. Let's keep the conversation going. I'm Ann Romer. Join me again next week. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.